0: morning we'll be picking up our study in Revelation uh, series, The Time is Near. The time is near. We're going to look at a couple of uh, current events this morning as well as looking at um, the compromising church as we read Revelation 2 uh, verses 12 through 17. If we remember as we go through uh, the book of Revelation, it's more than just Revelation, it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. Uh, It's not revelation of judgment, although judgment does happen. It's the revelation of Jesus for who he truly is. The King of all heaven and all earth. The Lord of lords, the beginning and the end. A powerful one, the mighty one. Revelation one three says, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. If the time was near 2,000 years ago, I'd say we're much nearer now. Uh, you know, sort of when you take a long road trip, uh, you, you know, you might be in South Dakota and you might be nearer your destination. Uh, but we're really near uh, the end times. We're in them. But previously we saw John, the Apostle John, in the Isle of Patmos, exiled there uh, for his faith. He had visions of the revealed Jesus Christ, both in power and glory. One who was glowing, one who was radiant, one who had fire and was John was scared. He fell down as a dead um, at the vision of Jesus. This wasn't this meek teacher on earth. This was the, the revelation of who was really inside that meek teacher. We saw that vision of Jesus walking amongst seven lampstands with seven stars in his hands. We found out that the seven lampstands are the seven churches, the number being uh, perfect of completion. And the seven stars in his hands were the messengers of those churches, were the leadership, the pastors uh, of those churches. Uh, We see that those churches are also churches, uh, seven churches in that day and age, seven church periods of history, and I also believe seven types of church uh, that uh, still exist, I think, in some manner or another today, Uh, maybe not all seven. We read the first uh, message was to the loveless church. This was the church in Ephesus, and Jesus said in chapter 2, verse 5, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. That Jesus is saying, I'm going to remove all that really makes you a church. I'm going to remove the lampstand. I'm going to remove the glory of God, the Spirit of God, the light of truth from you if you don't repent. That there's a consequence to even the church. That the church is not immune to discipline and to consequence, and as even as we'll see, to judgment. Now, The real church, the church that is really of Jesus, that really repents, is immune to those things because they will repent, they will be corrected, and they will not face judgment. But to the church in name only, there is danger. Then we read the message to the the persecuted church, the church in Smyrna. and Revelation uh, 2 says, Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and that you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful until death. And I will give you the crown of life. Remember that this church was a church that was persecuted. That was killed for their faith. And Jesus reminded them that he was the one who overcame death. But that they must hang on until death. That it wouldn't be long. But they'd have to hang on. And today, like I said, we're going to be looking at the compromising church. And I think the Lord reminded me of this verse. Uh During worship this morning, I want to read it before we get into it, before I forget it. It's Matthew 10, uh, 34. Talking about Jesus coming to bring a sword. Matthew chapter 10, verse 34 says, Jesus says, Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be those of his own household. He who loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. Lord, this morning we want to lose our lives for your sake. We don't necessarily want to die or have a death wish. Or, and We know we don't need to be martyred to be saved. But God, if that's your will for us, God, help us be strong. But more than that, let us lay our lives down daily as a living sacrifice to you, giving up our thoughts, our dreams, our will. For God, your will and your kingdom come. Let it come this morning as only you can through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So today, again, we're looking at the compromising church. In this day and age, you hear the word compromise, you might think, oh, this church is an enlightened church. This church knows a thing or two about how to get along in the modern world. They compromise. They go hand in hand with those who don't believe the same things that they believe. Because a compromise is an agreement or a settlement of a dispute that is reached by each side making concessions. Right? Maybe you and I go out on a date and we compromise on where to go, but... Maybe we choose a place that neither of us is really happy with. And so we compromise, right? We want our New York pizza so bad. So we go to Pizza Hut and it's not bad, but it's not New York pizza. We probably just would have been happier if we had burgers or something instead. But the problem is, is that that's a light compromise, but that as much as light can concede to darkness, can compromise the darkness. How much can it do so before the darkness takes over? If we look at our world today, the world would tell you and I that there's no right or wrong. I believe they say that because the right has given so much over to the wrong that there's no light from the right anymore. And when the light does sprout up, it is shouted down as intolerant by those who are in darkness. And I don't know that we should hate those who are in darkness because they are in darkness. They are stumbling they are blind and they don't know it and we wouldn't hate a blind person as they walk down the street, I hope. I hope we would help them. But if you look at our world today, and you just watch a couple clips of the news, you'll see that there are people who would hurt even the blind, even the poor, even the destitute and the old. Old people getting beat up on the subway, at a store, killed over a dollar. Tell me darkness has not taken over our world. Again, in modernity, compromise is seen as a good thing. It's something to aspire to. Again, I think compromise, something that may have had good roots and good intentions in a fleshly sense, because I believe if you really think about compromise, we're supposed to consider others better than ourselves. So if my wife and I want to go out to dinner and she wants steak and I want dollar menu, I should take her to go get steak, right? Not the, the McDonald's McRib sandwich. <laughs> you know, that's not a good compromise. But when it comes to evil, the only compromise is evil. And with the world, it's more from this maybe a good thing compromise and it's something that now we see there's no such thing as compromise anymore. It's total inclusion or nothing at all. I challenge you, email me if you want. Name any modern issue in Western society that hasn't had compromise brought into it. Name any issue, big or small, that hasn't stopped seeking even more after it reached a compromise. I want to pick on a couple big ones. Homosexuality. Gun control. Healthcare. Big government. Taxes. There are taxes for everything under the sun. Literally everything you and I do is taxed over and over again. And yet, what comes up every election? We need to raise taxes. We need to raise taxes and we've compromised, okay, we'll give you a little more, we'll give you a little more, and it's, it's never enough. Name one thing that liberalism has compromised back to conservatism. We've gone from a conservative nation to quite a liberal nation in less than a century. Nothing, I would say, the march has ever left. Now, I'm not going to tell you what to believe or who to vote for. I'm just trying to make a point about compromise. And I think that these issues are the most fleeting in our minds as Americans. Because even modern conservatives, modern Republicans, are far more liberal than their counterparts half a century ago. You might consider them a Democrat from the 50s or 60s. And modern liberals, who are Democrats in the 50s or 60s, are admittedly straight-up Socialists and even Communists today. If you look, we used to hold up marriage, but then we gave in a divorce and then sexual immorality came in, and then homosexuality, and then gay marriage, and then it was acceptance of trans people. Hey, you know I can't stop you from doing what you're gonna do, but I can't, I can't tell you that it's right and that it's okay. There's something wrong there. I think if we dig deeper, we'll find out a lot more wrong. We look at Christianity, it compromised to secularism, and then secularism was championed and compromised We had terrorist attacks, and we compromised, and we accepted this religion that attacked us. And now we've compromised again, and we've exalted it. And in that compromise, we've denigrated Christianity. That our compromise has not brought us to this utopian middle ground, but has brought us further and further toward the path of whom we are compromising to. We can switch gears a little bit and look at two current events. I want to look at two current events. Number one is Iran. Recently, uh, again, I'm not going to say whether we should or should not go to war. Um, you know legalities of certain things. But we killed an Iranian general who was in Iraq. What is he doing in Iraq? But we killed him. This guy was a terror. He was actively fighting U.S. assets. Uh, Iran has actively been against America for a long time. Uh, you know, you can look throughout history of terrorism, we've always kind of taken a far-off stance for one reason or another. Maybe we could attack them, maybe we could. Now we're kind of in a place where we almost have them surrounded. We're in Iraq and Afghanistan. But, you know, if you look into the logistics of war with them, it would be a long and brutal war. And I don't know that America has the gusto to do it or necessarily the reason to do it now, although I do believe Iran is a wicked regime. Uh, a former co-worker of mine her boyfriend uh, escaped Iran and Became an American citizen and changed his name and I you know, I don't think they had changed the name But that was up to him uh, and I commend him for that I'm thankful that he was able to get out come here by the right means and become an American citizen I think that is the American dream to escape tyranny and to be a part of Liberty and to make it your whole life I am uh, it, Not to be like Chris Matthews, but it gives me chills I, I am excited to hear about those things. Those things make me want to, in a sense, cry at times because that's the way it should be. But if we pay attention to the news, you're almost taught to believe that this guy was a good guy, that everything's about mourning him. Yeah, well, I'm sure his sympathizers and people who believe the same things he do are mourning him, but it doesn't change the fact. I'm not you know, trying to rationalize everything we do as a nation. But the question is, Really, what's going on spiritually behind all of this? If we look in the Bible, and we look in, throughout the scripture, about the end times, we've seen an alliance between Gog and Magog. Well who's Gog and Magog? It's Russia, China and Iran. We know that they're currently lining up in geopolitics, in uh, finances, in oil, trying to take over America's domination over there. They want a pathway to the Middle East and it's through Iran pathway to the Mediterranean, and it's through Iran. Iran hates Israel. They call Israel the little Satan. And they hate us. They call us the great Satan. And maybe they have a right to say that against us, but even for the fact that they're against Israel, we need to stand up for Israel. And they're seeking after nuclear arms. Believe me, they want to use them. The, one of the former presidents had a vision of blowing Israel off the map. You don't think they're going to use it when they have the right opportunity, when they have the right people behind them? A uh, commentator likened this to, could this be like the beginning of World War I where someone was killed and it escalated rapidly until the whole world was in war? And I could see that happening. But it's interesting when you consider Daniel 8, 5 through 10, and I believe this is end times dealing with the Antichrist. Uh, could be uh, talking about Alexander the Great in history. Uh, but this, could this be a setup for the final world kingdoms? Even what's going on right now with Iran, um, you know, because some current players on the world scene, I don't think can really exist the way they could in the final world. North, something's going to happen in North Korea. Everything's happened with all these dictators in North Africa. Uh, China is so strong, nothing's going to happen to them and they and in end times. Uh, South America has been in turmoil. And so Iran is kind of this big player that has to be dealt with, and they're either going to have a maintained power with Russia and China, or there's going to be a regime change there. And they still going to be aligned with Russia and China, but it's going to be different. But let's look at Daniel 8, 5 through 10 and consider current events, consider the end times. And Daniel even says, and as I was considering, he's having this spiritual vision here. Suddenly a male goat came from the West. Consider where he is. He's in Israel. He's in Babylon, the West, Europe, America. He comes across the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground. The goat had a notable horn between his eyes. had this symbol of power uh, or a leader. Then he came to the ram that had two horns, which I had seen standing beside the river and ran at him with furious power. And this is, you know, over in Babylon. And I saw him confronting the ram and he was moved with rage against him, attacked the ram and broke his two horns. There was no power in the ram to withstand him, but he cast him down on the ground and trampled him. And there was no one that could deliver the ram from his hand. Now, I'm not saying a war with Iran would be that easy, but if we really put our full might into it and pulled out all the political stops, we'd crush them in a second. Now, would we be willing to use those weapons in the political stage and the world stage and any, you know, I don't know. Therefore, the male goat grew very great. But when he became strong, the large horn was broken, and in the place with four notable ones came up toward the four winds of heaven. And out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. And it grew up to the host of heaven, and it cast down some of the hosts and some of the stars to the ground and trampled them. That little horn is the Antichrist. Could we, as America, I'm not saying we are, be that goat who flies across the whole world and has this war that crushes these powers... But in that, we lose some of our power when we become great after this war. We're broken up. Our power is spread out among our allies. And among them springs up the Antichrist. Could that be? Sure. Do I know for sure? Absolutely not. Is this conjecture? Absolutely. But I can't help but think about these things and consider them, like Daniel said, the Scripture. As we read this and more scripture, we see that the Antichrist rule is not an uncontested one. It's not a perfect utopia of peace that we're going to be ushered into uh, during the tribulation. There are going to be uprisings. There's going to be wars. There will be an assassination attempt against him and, in fact, a false resurrection. It would make for quite the movie if they'd actually do it correctly, based on what the scripture says. I'm looking forward to that front row seat, though, but in my horse, on my horse, riding back with Jesus that sword coming out of his mouth. And the second current event, and this is a long intro, but I think as we read today, having these current events in mind, especially the second one, it might hit home. I don't know if you saw in the news recently, but I'm going to read part of this article. It says, United Methodist Church announces proposal to split over gay marriage. How long did that take, United Methodist Church? The link is uh, in... uh, My note's available for download on the website, but I'm sure you can just search it and find it. The United Methodist Church announced a proposal on Friday to split the denomination over what it called fundamental differences regarding its beliefs on same-sex marriage and LGBTQ clergy. The proposal, signed by 16 church leaders from around the world, will be voted on at the church's 2020 general conference in May. If passed, it would allow for a traditionalist, quote-unquote, denomination to separate from the United Methodist Church, So the Methodist Church as a whole wants to continue on in this direction, but there's a sect that they're calling traditionals that want to break away. And they're the second largest denomination. Uh, Currently ordained pastors are not allowed to perform same-sex marriages, risking disciplinary action if they do, and quote-unquote practicing LGBTQ people also cannot become ordained pastors according to the Church's Book of Discipline. If you just read the way that's worded, you know where the angle of the article and the you know, what these people want. And this is what I really want you to hear. It says, The new traditionalist denomination, once separate, you know, once we get them out and separate, would open the door for the existing United Methodist Church to repeal the Church's ban on same-sex marriages and LGBTQ clergy. And here's what the Reverend Tom Berlin, a pastor at the Florida United Methodist Church in Herndon, Virginia, we knew Herndon, we were very far from there, he signed the protocol, described himself as representing groups who hold centrist view and the ideological conflict. He says if this actually passes, it will be a great relief. What this proposal allows us to do is to be more inclusive in the UMC. It also allows us to put controversy to rest. The controversy itself has been a stumbling block towards our larger mission. And the article goes on to say plenty more, which you can read. So I would ask Tom, the Reverend Tom Berlin, what is your mission? sounds like it's more about being inclusive to the world and the worldview than it is to holding fast to the Word of God. Correct me if I'm wrong. Let's read a devotion. Part of my devotion for this morning, I started reading morning my morning again this year. And I think the second half is very pertinent to what we're going to read today. Uh, it says, No sooner is there a good thing in the world than a division is necessary. Light and darkness have no communion. God has divided them. Let us not confound them. Sons of light must not have fellowship with deeds, doctrines, or deceits of darkness. The children of the day must be sober, honest, and bold in their Lord's work. So who's the Lord of the Methodist Church? Leaving the works of darkness to those who shall dwell in it forever. You hear that? Leave the works of darkness to those who will dwell in it forever. It's not for us, believer. He goes on, "...our churches should, be, should by discipline divide the light from darkness, and we should by our distinct separation from the world do the same. In judgment, in action, in hearing, in teaching, in association, we must discern between the precious and the vile, and maintain a great distinction which the Lord made upon the world's first day." Let there be light, and the light was separated from darkness. O Lord Jesus, be thou our light throughout the whole of this day, for thy light is the light of men. And again, I think the issue for the Methodist Church, and really for all churches and all believers, is what is a good thing? Is it the light of Bible, of the Bible and the truth of God, or is it the light and the truth of man? Humanism. Jesus says, and this is I've read this verse plenty of times. Matthew six twenty-two through twenty-three. The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Just a refresh of the meaning of the church names, the seven churches that we're looking through in Revelation. Ephesus is the desired one, and yet they became loveless. Smyrna. Myrrh, the the uh, essence of death, and they were the one that were they were killed. Pergamos means mixed marriage, mixed marriage, and they were compromising, right? Thyatira, uh, Semiramis. Sardis is remnant, Philadelphia is brother love, Laodicea is the people rule. We'll look more at those as we get into them. But also in the notes, there's a, a two charts here that I, I, I can't show you by reading them, but it talks about the church ages. The church ages, the seven church ages. And I think it's interesting because if we look at one, it says Ephesus was around AD 30 to 100. That was the apostolic church, but you know, founded by the apostles. AD 100 to 313 was Smyrna. We look at the Roman persecution of the church. AD 313 to 600 is Pergamum, the age of Constantine, the Roman uh, emperor who decided to uh, combine. Uh, make Catholicism the official Roman religion instead of persecuting it. Uh, and that's where we get, you know, why Christmas on December 25, why, you know, Easter and all this other stuff. Um, and then 600 to 1517 was Thyatira. That was during the Dark Ages. Uh, 1517 to 1648 was Sardis. That was the Reformation, Martin Luther. 1649 to 1900 is Philadelphia, the missionary movement. And this chart says 1900 to the present is Laodicea or apostasy where the church went from being missionaries being solid in the word to embracing anything but the word and in fact becoming not a apostolic but uh apostatic <laughs> you know apostate embracing apostasy and then the rapture and i believe this is interesting uh with this other uh, chart which is similar and related the dates are a little bit different there um uh, but I think it's interesting that this, this chart decides to put these people as the stars over the church ages. Not only do we have pastors over the ages, I mean pastors over the actual church, but pastors over the ages in a sense. It's the first one, they would say Paul. second one was Arrhenius. third one they say Martin. And then Columba. And then we have Luther and Wesley. And there's they don't know who to put over the last one. Another one, put somebody's name over it, but I didn't know who they were. Um you can look at this if you want. But it's interesting, you know, I, I wonder if there is no star over the aposto- not apostolic, uh, the, the Laodicean Church in a sense. That if there's, you know, maybe it's Joel Osteen, I don't know. But, you know, there's someone over it who's, you know, almost like the Pope today who's so into his own thing and not about the Word and changing everything. Um is what it is, is what it is, but uh, I would agree that we live in the last days, as much as some modern churches we want to believe that we're the Philadelphia Church, and maybe you are in your local congregation, but look at the church, the church is I mean, just what I just read every denomination is kind of cuckoo Lord, forgive us of being that way let us be like the churches that need no correction the churches that are full of love and serve you and god where we do need correction let us repent at it and listen to it and be willing to change no matter how much it hurts no matter how much it upsets the status quo how much it upsets our religion and our historical practices if they're evil let us get rid of them and if they're righteous let us hold on to them i love you god come soon we pray and give us grace and mercy in jesus name amen so let's do revelation 2 12 through 17. And the word of God says, Jesus says, To the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith even in the days in which Antipas, my faithful martyr, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, because you have there those who would hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you uh, also have those who, have, who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which things I hate. Repent, or else I will come to you quickly, or will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat and I'll give him a white stone and on the stone, a new name written, which no one knows, except him who receives it. This church, Pergamos, Um, uh, David Guzik's commentary says, Pergamos had been the capital city of the region, uh, and that region was Asia Minor, is modern day Turkey. Uh, It was that way for more than 300 years. The city was a noted center for culture and education having one of the great libraries of the ancient world that had more than 200,000 volumes. I mean, that's a big deal. They didn't have the printing press. People had to write these things. They were expensive. This is where knowledge was stored. Um, You know, college textbooks still charge you like they were all hand copied, right? Um, But this city was extremely religious. Uh, The city apparently had uh, temples to many Roman gods, but also three temples to the emperor, like we talked about last week. Uh, Where Smyrna had a temple to uh, I think it was Tiberius the Roman Emperor. This was a living one This was they had already temples to the the dead emperors at this time Uh, Caesar Augustus they had the right to put up the first temple in his name. So they've already begun worshiping man They're already worshiping everything in Rome big temples and all the things that go along with Roman idolatry um, great wickedness Uh, But I'm gonna read this part because I believe it's especially uh, telling, and uh, it's from the commentary from Barclay. And it says, This city was especially known as a center of the worship of the deity known as, I'm going to mess up the name, uh, Asclepios, uh, represented by a serpent. Asclepios was the god of healing and knowledge. Uh, there was a medical school at his temple in Pergamos. Uh, and, you know, a side note, you have to think, with a, there's that symbol for health with the two snakes on the pole. That's not From the Bible, that's from Roman mythology, and I'm sure that this is related, giving the same. We still have that little snake god running around all the place. But because of the famous temple to the Roman god of healing, sick and diseased people from all over the Roman Empire flocked to Pergamos for relief. Sufferers were allowed to spend the night in the darkness of the temple, and in the temple there were tame snakes. In the night, the sufferer might be touched by one of these tame and harmless snakes as it glided over the ground on which he lay. No thanks, I'm not sick enough. <laughs> the touch of the snake was held to be the touch of the God himself, and the touch held, uh, was held to bring health and healing. Can't wait till we see this on Oprah as <laughs> the next health craze. Uh, but this name means serpent savior. And if we remember in Exodus, serpents were sent... Uh, vipers were sent because of the immorality of the people and they were dying because of the bites. And so who saved them? God told Moses to put up a bronze serpent on a pole and the people, if they just looked at the serpent, would be healed. Uh, But this was not symbolizing a serpent savior. This was symbolizing a savior killing the serpent and dying for us and taking the place of sin and the serpent in our lives. But I ask you, what are two of the biggest things our society holds up an almost untouchable and irrefutable esteem, meaning you can't even come against it. You can't have another opinion. You can't even debate it in the public square. Well, knowledge, science, right? I'm not saying that science is wrong, but some of the things that science teaches is clearly religion and medicine, healing. Do everything a doctor says, or there's something wrong with you. You're crazy, you're backwards. Now, doctors know a lot of good things. I'm glad we have doctors in hospitals, but to hold them up like God, to hold up the medical consensus when 150 years ago, we, the medical consensus was to cut off your leg and to, you know, there were no germs. You don't think if we go on for another 150 years, we're going to look back and go, wow, medicine was totally wrong to do that. I mean, look at our use of antibiotics. All of a sudden, they're not working anymore because medicine overused them. But Jesus says he's going to come against them with a sharp two-edged sword out of his mouth. We know what that sword is as believers. It's the word of God. Hebrews 4.11 talks about uh, 4.11 and 12. For the word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even the division of soul and spirit and joints and marrow, discerning of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there's no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him who must be given account. You know, a surgeon's scalpel or a laser knife is super sharp. It cuts really accurate, but it can only cut through flesh. It's used by an imperfect surgeon, but God's word comes out of his mouth. God's sword comes out of his mouth. And it's able to cut right between your flesh, right between your bone and marrow, and right between your heart and your thoughts and say, your heart is tricking you. Your thoughts have deceived you. This is what's really right, and this is what's really wrong. Your emotions have led you down this path. Your ideas of knowledge and right and wrong have led you here. But this is not the truth. And only the Word of God can do that. Because Jesus knows what each church is doing. He says He knows your works. And the commentary, I like what it says, says, even if there isn't much to know, God knows our works. That what each of us as a believer is doing, what each of our bodies of churches are doing, He knows the motives, the will, the desires, the real fruit. And he cuts between it and says, you guys are holding fast my name, but you're holding to the deeds and the doctrines of the Nicolaitans. You are immoral. You have to repent. It's great that you hold my name. I'm proud of you for that. But this is inexcusable, Jesus says. And he divides the two. That These two in their minds are, are coming together. Look at how enlightened we are. We love Jesus, but we're, we're very worldly. We, we give in to the ways of the world. We've compromised our faith with the ways of the world. That although we don't worship at Zeus's temple, we worship at Jesus' temple. But we worship in the same ways. Because at the temple of Zeus and others, there were temple prostitutes. Same thing. And Jesus knows the real fruit. And he can tell if we're working to get noticed or working to actually get things done. And he says, I know where you dwell. I know that you live in this wicked city. And he says where Satan's throne is. And I don't think Jesus is being cute here. I don't think he's saying some analogy or metaphor. It's like Satan's throne because it's wicked. I think Jesus is saying at this time in history, in this city, was a spiritual place where Satan had his throne set up. And from this city, all the knowledge, all the worship, all the influence went out. Maybe it's some other place today Satan is not bound by borders. He can go and take uh, Nazism, Stalin, the Huns, Alexander the Great. He can go take over whatever throne he wants and put them in power that he might gain his influence over the world. And Jesus fully tells us it's here that Satan is on a throne, it's on the earth, and it has a specific location. You put it in your GPS. I try, don't try it later. But if you look at the modern world, I wonder where it is today. I wonder where it is today, where the influence comes from, where the knowledge and everything is coming out of, and all the rules for the world and society and how it lives. Is it not perhaps even the Middle East? Was it perhaps the West at some point? But the West spread the gospel. The West spread health, wealth, and prosperity, so to speak, and democracy. And now the West is even bowing down to the Middle East and to China. All the world power is being pulled toward these regions, and in fact, forcing mass migration out of it, which is spreading its ideology, spirituality, and diminishing the power of the rest of the world to come under the sway of this one ideology. I don't know, I don't know for sure, and I don't know that I really want to know. I'm concerned more about the throne in heaven, the real throne, the everlasting throne, a real powerful throne, God's throne, the one where he rules and reigns and can never be removed from. But would you want to live near Satan's throne? You're going to buy a house and the realtor says, hey, here's a benefit, Satan's throne's right next door. I don't think so. If we ask politely, but if you look at the way people go in the world and look at the things that even the people in the church would like to sit down on and sit down near, Is it not things that would be associated with Satan's throne and not God's throne? This throne of tolerant judgment. This throne of no right and wrong. This throne of you can do whatever you want to do except believe in Jesus. Except believe in absolute truth. Except believe in right and wrong. But you, my people, can believe in whatever else you want. Come, enjoy my kingdom. And any of those who would not want my kingdom, we must kill them and banish them. In fact, you must take a mark to prove your loyalty to me, or otherwise I will take your head off. But if you take that mark, I'm going to give you such good things. You're going to have a great part in my kingdom. Is it that far off from where we are now? I don't think so. Has it been that way for all history? Yes. Has it been congealing in bigger and bigger and bigger ways? Absolutely. Absolutely. So that's how I know it's the end times, guys. Commentary also talks about many different opinions as to why this was called the stronghold of satanic power. I I don't know that we necessarily get in the weeds of that. We just need to know that there's a spiritual power at work on the earth. That when we sinned in the Garden of Eden, we handed over the title deed to Satan there. That it was our kingdom to rule and reign over we hand it over to satan so satan tricks us to think that we're getting more power but it's really him getting more power we need to remember that jesus won that war already on the cross but even though he won that war he hasn't come yet in to wipe out all his enemies he hasn't cleaned out the land yet he hasn't brought in that new kingdom fully yet why i believe because he's giving time for everyone in the wicked kingdom an opportunity to realize they, they need to be on the winning side They need to be on the righteous side. They need to come to his kingdom because if he comes in and wipes this all out now, they won't have a chance. And as a righteous king, he's giving the chance of the inhabitants of this world to repent before he installs his kingdom when he will rule with an iron scepter, as we'll read later. But that's exactly what Satan is doing in the world now. He's already lost, and he's trying to wipe out anything of God's kingdom. He's saying, yeah, the cross didn't mean anything. I'm going to set up my kingdom. That way, when Jesus does come back, we're going to beat him and he's not going to have any chance. And that's what we're going to read later in Revelation. But he's setting up his final kingdom, that one world kingdom, a global kingdom, physical, spiritual, and slavery to wickedness. But Jesus commends this church. He says, they held fast my name. They didn't hold fast their church's name. They said, we hold fast to Jesus's name that even in their wicked city, even with their false false doctrine and all their personal shortcomings, they still believed in Jesus and they clung tight to him. They didn't have everything right. No church. I mean, there's a couple churches that seem like they do here, but they didn't want Zeus's name, the snake's name, or Caesar's name on them. They wanted Jesus' name, even though they didn't quite live up to his word. And there's definitely a disparity there and repentance has to happen, but there's something to be said for that and Jesus does commend them for that. Philippians 2 9 through 11 says, Therefore, God has also highly exalted him and given Jesus, the name of which is above every name. That the name of Jesus is not just his name on his birth certificate, it's his name, it's his essence, it's who he is, it's, it's in all of reality, in all the kingdom. The name of God is Jesus. Yahushua, in <laughs> you know, whatever language you speak, translate it. That in his name, his name is power, every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth. He doesn't force them to bow. It just happens. Because you have to bow to this power. Satan makes people bow. We make people bow. Jesus doesn't make anybody bow. But when he comes, everyone is going to bow. Because his name is above every other name. And there's, you have to bow. And then every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You confess now out of your free will. Or you confess then out of your just the fact that it's the way it is. Jesus is Lord and I'm condemned forever because I rejected Him. Because I was wicked. And I'm rightfully suffering for it In darkness forever. But God doesn't want that. That's why we have revelation. Remember, He's revealing this judgment to come that we might not go through it and we see that Jesus commends a specific person named Antipas, or Antipas. Sorry about heaven i correct me. But Jesus calls him a faithful witness. Something that was Jesus' title alone. That Jesus says to this guy, you held my name, and you lived the life, and you loved me, and your doctrine was right, and you were killed for me in this wicked city. And he commends him. I looked in the commentary to see if they knew anything and it says that there's no mention of him. That history doesn't say anything about this guy, but Jesus does. And that's the book I want to be written in. I don't care if there's a YouTube video, a blog, a newspaper post. I want to be in God's Word. I want to be in God's book where he says, yep, there's you. There's you, my good and faithful servant. I don't think I'll ever be as good as Annabelle, but I think it's awesome. It reminds me of Stephen when he was the first martyr. He was full of the Holy Spirit. He was, quote-unquote, just a deacon, just serving tables, but he was full of the Holy Spirit, and he was the first one martyred. And who stood up in heaven? Jesus did, and welcomed him in. And in this dark city, this evil city of Pergamos, um, a Christian, Antipas, was murdered for his faith. Can you imagine that? Someone's murdered in your town for being a Christian? happened on Christmas in the Middle East. I don't think it's going to be long before it happens here. And we're getting close to that in the mainstream, where violence against people, conservatives, is almost accepted or even touted. Comedians cutting off the head of a president on a magazine cover. Okay? You don't like them, I get it. You believe something else, I get it. Isn't there a more civil discourse? I believe this is perhaps the sacrifice Satan loves most. It happened right before his throne. Christians killed. I think in some sense, he loves it more than babies. America, you can't kill Christians yet, but we can kill the babies. So let's kill all the babies. And then once all our hearts are hard, we'll eventually get to killing Christians. God loves the children. You ever wonder? It's not... Because Satan just hates little babies, I'm sure he does because his life, but he hates them the most because God loves them in a sense the most. But despite a martyr being in their midst and they're holding fast to Jesus' name, this church, like we alluded to either, there was no excusing their other beliefs and behavior. Despite all the good, despite this saint of history, who somehow gets ignored by history, there's no excuse. There's no excuse for compromise in the kingdom. Of heaven, there cannot be compromise and maintain righteousness in the church. Talks about the doctrine of Balaam. If you read Numbers, he couldn't curse Israel directly, so he committed a wickedness and he pleased the pagan king, and he got the people. He put the stumbling block before them. He got them. He convinced them that it was okay to commit sexual immorality, and that was the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. It's okay to commit sexual immorality. It's okay to do these things. It's okay to be this way. It's okay. God understands. God made you that way. No, that's sin in the world and in you. And the Roman culture was highly immoral. Like you mentioned, prostitution and worship. It even was accepted for homosexual relationships between men and children. We have that today. Look up NAMBLA N A M B L A. That's old. Wait till that's accepted. Why wouldn't it be accepted in a couple of years? The way things are going. We, children can tell us about climate change and about gun control. Well, at what point are we going to say, well, they have their own rights to do everything they want? I'm not saying it's right. I think it's disgusting. But the point is, is that that's where our, our society is going. And unfortunately, that's where our church is going as well. First Corinthians 5, 1-3. I won't read it for time. Read it later. But Paul says it's actually reported that there's sexual immorality among you and such sexual immorality is not even named among the Gentiles. That you're doing something the Gentiles don't even do. And you say it's okay. He says, Do you not know that the little leaven leavens the whole lump? Purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump since you are truly unleavened. That's what Jesus is saying to this church. You need to repent. You need to get rid of this leaven within you. Remember, the other church hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans. Two churches, one embraced it, the other one hated it. What does Jesus say? Oh, you guys should compromise. He says, no, I hate it. Get rid of this doctrine. Get rid of this lifestyle. Get it out of your life. It has no place in your life. If you don't, I will come quickly with the sword of my mouth against you. I will fight against you, he says, with the sword of my mouth. As a church, as a believer, do you want God saying, I'm going to fight against you with my word? But what can correct the believer? The word can. What can correct the church? Only the word. And what will also destroy a believer? Not submitting to the word. The word destroys them. What will destroy the church? In fact, their disobedience to the word. But does the church really want to fight Jesus as his word? I mean, he is the word. But if you look at our church as a whole and modern society, does it not fight against the word with every chance it gets? Trying to deny it, trying to compromise, trying to look cool to the world, trying to look acceptable to the world, trying to stretch God's word to fit in the doctrines and ideologies of the world and health and science. Picking and choosing what to believe and trying to even change the word of God. I believe we are more concerned about what the world's word is and what the word of the day is and what their word is about us and what God's word is, what God's word says about us, and what it teaches us to be and how to live. Because we are to be Christians like little words of God walking around. Colossians 4 6, let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt. They may know how to answer each one. We're not going to come back and bludgeon them with a sword, but season with grace. That sword's going to sink in and cut them deep, and they even realize we got them. They even realize. The, the knife went in. It's oh, 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 It went in. But he says them. Jesus says them. Almost as if those in the church who aren't corrupted, who are listening, or maybe they're corrupted and they are listening, they need to get those out who aren't listening, who are corrupted, and who won't repent. Back to the traditionalist Methodists. I hope that they're the ones listening. I remember uh, growing up, one of my good friends, his parents were Methodists and everything. I hope that they're on the right side of it. The others, well, Jesus said he's going to come quickly to fight against you if you don't repent. The rest of the United Methodist Church, you need to repent. Not because I said so, but because the Word of God says so. And if you're not listening to the Word of God, you're certainly not going to listen to little old me. But Jesus says, this is kind of scary, in Revelation 19.21, towards the end of the whole book, and the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. So when Jesus comes back with his army, it's not a nuclear bomb he uses to fight them. It's a flaming sword out of his mouth that cuts them all down. Opens his mouth, <laughs> army is destroyed. Blood is high as bridles. No standing against his word. And he says, To so those who overcome, I will give you hidden manna. If you remember in Exodus, manna was the, what is it? The stuff, the cornflakeish kind of thing that fell from heaven that they'd make into bread and everything. And it was a sign of the bread from heaven. And Jesus was the bread of heaven. He broke the bread and he blessed in communion. That Jesus is the bread of life. He says, when you, get, when you overcome this, you're going to have something so sweet, so delicious, so nutritious spiritually for you in heaven, unlike anything else. And it's interesting he says that because they've compromised on what? His word. They believe the word of the Nicolaitans over the word of Jesus through his apostles. He says, if you just believe my word, cut out the garbage, you're going to have something so sweet. You're looking for something so sweet, so delicious. You're trying to embrace the doctors of the world because they taste good at the time. But I tell you, you cut that out and you eat just the word of God. So I say, I don't need to read any other book. I need to read the Bible. Sure, I'll read other books that help me with the Bible and help me in my faith. But at the end of the day, this is what I need to munch on. This is what I need to eat. It'll correct me. It will get me going in the right direction if I'm willing to be repentant in front of it. And that Bible, that same Bible, has the hidden manna in it. The world reads it. The world spits it out. The world doesn't get to the hidden manna. It doesn't even handle the crust of the bread. But when you and I as believers read it, as the Holy Spirit ministers to us things in it, things that others have missed, things that we have missed before, even in just the simple overview reading of it, there's hidden manna there. There's hidden, mm, that was good, I didn't see that before. Mm, that's, oh wow, that's for my situation. Oh, that's for me. Help me, Lord. And it sustains us through the day and through our life and through a wicked time. And I think that's the same thing to sustain Antipas as he was murdered. I don't know how it happened. But he held fast to the Word of God because he knew it was good, and it was in him, and it was a part of him. I love to see that there's a feast in heaven with that hidden man as well. But he says, I give you a white stone with a new name written on it, one that no one knows. And I think of 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, as anyone in Christ sees new creation, all things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. I think in some sense, this could almost be for all believers. I hope it is. I want to get a white stone. I don't want to be a part of the, uh, the, the compromising church. I've always loved this verse. It's just the picture there, in some way, is so sweet. And I hope in some sense we all get one. But your mom and dad, my mom and dad named me. It's who we are. Uh, we named our children. We have special meanings for a name. I believe we, they have good names. They're good names. Uh, they're nice names in English, and I think they have nice meaning spiritually as well, and even to my wife and I's hearts. And you might have a good name on earth, you might not. You might be Aloysius, it's fallen out of of favor. But you also have a name, your reputation on earth, who you are to others around you, who you are in the world, more than your LinkedIn profile. And I think of this rock, it's kind of like that i think there's also something else like a love and a pet name that you might have for your spouse that only you and your spouse know that you love them and you have this special name for them maybe it's in your phone and you call them up i remember a pastor friend of mine had a pet name for his wife in his phone that was it but in heaven in the spiritual world god has a special name for you and i that when he made you he named you and maybe your parents listened and got something close But even if they did, he has a special name for you. I believe reserved from before even the foundations of the world. Because he knows you. He knows your works. He knows how you truly repented. He knows every hair on your head. He knows your heart. He knows the intents of your heart. He knows how he made you, what he created you to be, what the path of your life and intent was for you. Something so intimate, it's only between you and him, and it's engraved in the most precious stone of all. This white little stone, I think, is more precious than diamonds. And the roads are paved with gold, so to speak, in heaven, but God gives them a little white stone with their name on it. And I can't wait to know what God's name for me is. And the last two verses, we'll read them again. says, Repent, or else I will come to you quickly, and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So this message is for everybody. To him who comes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. Lord, that name written is written by your word, and in your word, and in your language, that only you and we will know. There's something so adamant about that, God. And the same thing way your word is, it cuts deep between soul and spirit, bone and marrow, God. Help the church repent. Help us repent. Help us hold fast to your word and not compromise, to not give in to the ways of the world and the ways of our own flesh, our own desires. But God, to trust you, God, to lift your name up, the name above all names. Come soon, we pray, God, but bless your people. Let your church be your church and exalt your name above any other name, God. Thank you, God. Thank you for your word and the freedom to preach. We pray for those who are under persecution, who are under threat of immorality and are under attack and are holding fast despite their church being wayward. God, give them strength, we pray, and remind them of these verses, we ask. We love you, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. May God bless you and keep you, and His face shine upon you. There is a vineyard of the Lord. There is a vineyard for our soul. With all our troubles left behind the door, we drink first light until the door.